Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Yadid Eisenberg, the CEO and co-founder of Stealth Labs, a health technology startup. Having previously founded the Sync Project, which was later acquired by Bose Corporation, Yadid has over 25 years experience, most recently leading the sleep consumer business at Bose. Today, we're going to discuss the world of stealth startups and Yadid learns as a second time founder. Thank you so much for joining us today, Yadid. Firstly, can you start by giving a bit of an overview of your founder journey up to this point? Yeah, happy to. So um, I think, uh, you know, my startup experience has been pretty uh, varied. After my undergrad, uh, I spent a few years in in a big corporation, and then I joined a a five-person startup in a garage somewhere in in Tel Aviv. And uh, I saw that it was really something that I enjoyed uh, massively, this uh, feeling that you can change the world with a very small group of people uh, and the ability to really uh, make an impact uh, whereas in big corporations, that's very difficult. That startup was very successful. We, we grew it to, to 200 people and uh, eventually was acquired by uh, a big semiconductor company. And so after that, I, I took a break. I decided that I, I needed to do something different. Uh, I went to MIT and the idea was to go to MIT for a couple of years, do a master's and then start a, a, another company. Uh, somehow those two years turned into a PhD uh, because I was just having too much fun, I guess. And then I decided that it, it was time to, to start another company. So uh, we started the Sync Project. Uh, Sync Project built a platform for sensor-driven audio for health and wellness applications. And uh, at the time, uh, Bose was starting their health division seemed like a, a very good fit uh, for us in terms of where we wanted to go and what we were trying to achieve. And they wanted to build out their division. And so we, we joined Bose. After four years at Bose working on uh, sleep products, uh, it was time to uh, go back to starting something yet again. And uh, this is uh, where we are today. Excellent. I think it's always great for listeners to have a little bit of context as to as to why things as they are. Now, this is a subject I've been really looking forward to speaking with you about. And it's uh, it's that interesting phrase, which has got a very glamorous sounding title, but is is the world of stealth startups. I'm sure you're going to explain to me um, exactly why sometimes it's far from glamorous. But like all these things, can you just give people that are maybe uh, coming into this like I was not that long ago, who haven't been in this world too much, of, of, of just a bit of a definition of what a stealth um, startup is and, and, and why it might be required? Yeah. So a stealth startup is, by the way, a stealth startup doesn't really need to be a company on its own. Uh, large corporations also sometimes have stealth projects. But basically what that means is that that project is uh, or that company is uh, confidential, that uh, there is no disclosure to the public. There is very limited disclosure to to the outside, usually just to either uh, partners or investors uh, that need to know. I, I'd, say, I'd say that's the definition. Now, I think in terms of examples, Apple are a very good example of uh, having stealth projects because you really don't know 
what the features are going to be before they release their iPhone. Obviously, there's a lot of rumors and uh, information that leaks from their manufacturers sometimes or partners. But in general, until they announce, it's very difficult to know what the what it's going to look like and what products uh, they plan to introduce. So that is that, that is the definition of, of what a stealth startup is and or, or stealth project in a company. And the reason, well, there are varied reasons, but I'd say one of the most important ones is if you're developing something that has increased uh, uh, R&D uh, risk, then sometimes it makes sense to not disclose to the public until you're absolutely convinced that you can pull it off. Because the risk is if, if you go public and then uh, obviously things change and you're not able to deliver, that will hurt, hurt your brand. As you know, uh, one of the most valuable things for a startup is public awareness is your brand. You can have a fantastic product and if no one knows about the product, then of course uh, you won't have a, a business. And so in order to protect your brand, in order to uh, control uh, the narrative, to control when you launch and what you launch, you keep it under wraps until you're absolutely confident uh, that you can deliver. So I think that's kind of reason number one. Reason number two is uh, protection of intellectual property. So if you're a startup with extremely limited resources and you want to have a first mover advantage, then in order to prevent your competitors from uh, that often have more resources from implementing the exact same thing quickly because they have all those resources and getting to market first, uh, then you would you know maintain that veil until you launch and then you will have first mover advantage. And so you, you will have obviously competitors that, that follow because that's always the case. Good products are always copied. But you will have the, that, that advantage, which is, is also valuable. And then lastly, and I think this is no less important, it allows you to focus on, on product development and not manage the PR and the branding and uh, the press. And that is, uh, I think, as founders, focus is a really important resource because you really need to uh, pick your battles. And so if now I have to juggle between talking to press and customers and, and also building a, a very complicated product and technology, then obviously something has to, uh, something has to give. It's very difficult to do all of those successfully for a prolonged period of time. And so this enables you by not currently releasing information to press and to, to the customer to really focus on the product until you're absolutely convinced uh, that, that you have exactly what's, what's needed. What can go wrong in stealth mode? A lot. Uh, and, and by the way, many, many, uh, many people will, will say uh, never do stealth because the biggest th risk for stealth is lack of product market fit. So in, in startups that are, are, are not stealth and they're trying to validate product market fit to get traction, then they develop rough prototypes very quickly and then they start getting early customers and getting that feedback loop going and adapt the product until they, they have product market fit and they have traction. So that's, that's very valuable. Now, that makes sense if, if you have a product which uh, you can build a prototype of uh, really quickly. 
So, in, for example, for many SaaS products, uh, really you need you know two programmers uh, and an AWS account, and and you can uh, within a few weeks you can sometimes generate a prototype and start uh, getting customer feedback. But in uh, highly complicated products uh, that require things like uh, uh, research and human studies, etc., that's that's not possible. You can't really generate a, a prototype in a few weeks, and so getting product market fit is uh, a lengthy process. You have to first develop the technology and then test it. And so the risk is that you do all of that investment and build prototypes and run studies, et cetera, and then come up with you know the result that, oh, actually, uh, customers don't really need the product, don't want the product, and that's a lot of wasted uh, time and money. And so that's, I think, the biggest risk by far for a stealth startup. It's also... If you don't collect feedback often when you're doing the development, then of course you you'll probably end up with a poorer uh, product experience. And then finally, you don't gain any free press because by definition you're stealth. No one knows what you're working on. And so when you want to go public uh, and you decide now it's time to launch, then that requires a lot of energy and effort and money. Uh, in order to to get the the attention uh, and, and build your 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 image, because you're not doing it over time, you're doing it at once. So those are the things that things that can go wrong with with a stealth company. I'm looking forward to asking you about um, how on earth you go about raising money when you're or raising capital when you're in stealth mode. But you mentioned something there, uh, you did that I wanted to re, that, that I wanted to come back to. You mentioned the creation of product, and uh, and I'd imagine that when you uh, you launched Sleep Buds too, as I understand it, when you're at Bose, which is a you know one of the highly most highly reviewed products that they've ever had. I'd be fascinated to hear the biggest learns and takeaways from the the product journey when you were when you were at Bose. Yes, um, so we very early on identified that um, sleep is is uh, an area uh, that there is a very big unmet need. Uh, in, in the market, people are struggling with sleep. And we believe that uh, we had technology, unique technology that could help many customers. And so when we launched the product, by the way, the, the original launch of SleepBuds 1 was done on a, via Indiegogo. And the reason it was done on Indiegogo was really to get to get that very early feedback. And so we had... We had product, but it was, uh, I'd say there were still issues with, with some of the features. It wasn't, some of the features were yet to be developed, but we felt that if we could release that early on, we could get valuable feedback to help shape the product. And so specifically for a, a company like Bose, which has a, an extremely valuable brand, and really the, the brand is every, everything, right? And if there's any risk of tarnishing the brand, then that's something the company won't won't do. And so you can't really release a, a partial product to the general population because that will there's a risk that it will tarnish the brand. But if you do that in something like Indiegogo, a Kickstarter campaign, where you're actually telling customers this is you know this is a, a concept, it's a limited group of people who get to to buy it. Um, you know, usually within a couple of thousands. And really, and, and, and the goal is that you gather feedback uh, very often 
from from those early users, and that will help you shape uh, the product. And so when when we did that, we found that really customers were we help we solved their problem, but they were also in return very passionate about helping us make a better product, which was great. So we would get a lot of feedback on features that they wanted, on issues that they were seeing. And that really helped us make a much better product and, you know, all of those learnings. And, and also that transferred into Sleep Buds 2, which was, uh, had, had further improvements. So, you know, the customer feed, feedback is invaluable. You've gone from that and that journey, and I'm sure there would have been a lot of, uh, lot of energy, a lot of effort gone into perfecting, getting things as good as, as you possibly can with the, with the first and the second version of products. Then it's back to startup mode. You did have got to ask the question, why? <laughs> yeah, oh, there are a lot of, there's a, there are a lot of reasons, right? Uh, but um, I think this is probably one of the biggest learnings I have from working in both startups and, and big corporations. Um, so startups have this uh, advantage of being able to take risks. And while most big corporations are risk risk averse, right? So as a startup, I'm, for example, I'm willing to take on some amount of technical debt, which means I want to get to market sooner. And so I'm, I'm willing to make certain trade-offs knowing that it's things I'll need to fix later down the road. But the most important thing is getting to market quickly. Bigger organizations uh, design for an optimal solution. So they won't take that risk to get to market first because it, you know, risks hurting their brand, et cetera. And so if in a startup I can potentially deliver something in six months, in a, in a bigger company, sometimes that will take three times or four times more, right, with m- many more people. Startups are usually more nimble. There are less decision makers. There are or less bulky processes. Usually that, that enables you to learn very quickly from failure and adapt. And in many big organizations, failure is not rewarded, right? You have to get the, the, the answer right on the first time. And if you fail, there are consequences. And so, uh, and th- therefore it takes by definition a lot more time to get alignment on any changes because you have to be right. And, and, and people don't want to take risk and they won't want to, to get to the same place. Whereas in a startup, you can take those risks because you have the ability to adapt very quickly. And so it's not that it will take me now, you know, many, many months to learn and, 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 and fix and, and, and use a lot more capital, but rather if I can test a, an assumption very quickly and figure out that we were wrong and fix it very quickly, then that's extremely valuable. Lastly, startups are more capital efficient. And so a project, a product, product development in startups is, is uh, significantly cheaper. There are many reasons to that, uh, you know, corporate overhead, etc. But some of it is just the fact that in startups, the team members are willing to wear multiple hats. Um, and so a single team member may do three things. They may, you know, write code and they may test. And they also sometimes will uh, do uh, some user validation, whereas in a big corporation, I'll, I'll, I'll usually need three people to do that. So that gets expensive really quickly. And so really to move quickly, um, to, to require less resources, to, to, to build a vision, I think startups, some startups, again, in some big corporations, though that's the 
that's the picture. The um, the thing I was looking forward to to ask in relation to stealth mode is that it must make a fair bit of difference to the planning of the business, or does it not? Like, is there is when you come out of stealth mode when you go into product launch phase? I'd imagine one of the key lines in the sand of where the business is aiming to get to. And as we all know, with multiple things in life, <laughs> aimed for time periods sometimes have to get shoved back a day, a week, a month, six months, or whatever it may be. How much is that product launch? How much is the time when you'll be able to <laughs> leave stealth mode uh, a key kind of uh, a key aiming point for you and, 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 and the team? And how much flexibility do you allow yourselves around that? Yeah, I think everything in the end is dictated by when you intend to launch, right? The, the, the launch is really kind of the pivotal moment where you now uh, enable customers to, to purchase product, where you really, it's, you let people experience what you're building. That's, 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 the, that's what we aim for. Now, actually going public, you have to time that very carefully because if you go public too early, and uh, you, you you waste, you know, there's a lot of energy that's spent there. And then if you tell, for example, if I tell a, if I tell customers, this is an amazing product, look at all these wonderful features, and you can buy this in six months. So there's a lot of excitement, and then people forget. And now six months have passed, and now I have to spend a lot more energy again to remind people of what we've built and how great it is, and et cetera, et cetera. And so... You have to get that right where you create anticipation uh, for your product and the amount of time that passes that, that lets people really experience the product, they, they, it ha- they have to wait a bit, but not too much for them to be frustrated. You know, when we know for sure when the launch date is going to be, that will dictate exactly going back when, when we'll go public and uh, what our marketing campaigns will look like, et cetera. Let's talk about something which appears on the face of it to be almost absurd. Raising capital for a stealth business. <laughs> yeah. Have you just got to have the most sublime network where they say, oh, listen, I know that so-and-so. Uh, l- l- let me get in front of him and he can tell me just about what he's, what, what he's up to and let me see if I back him. Or how does that even begin? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's, it's all about the network uh, because stealth mode is really about control of information and um, so you're not really, you can't really just release your pitch deck to the to the world and and help that you know hope that uh, the, the only the right people see it. And so we relied heavily on our network in order to to get to the the VCs we thought would be a good fit for us. And obviously, to those VCs that that we had discussions with, you, there was full disclosure of of everything, right? And um, you rely on, on their integrity and their reputation that they won't disclose it to anyone else. And that's worked really well for us. There are scenarios that uh, uh, you can't control uh, the flow of information. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you go to some a large angel syndicates, right? And some of these syndicates have dozens of, of members. And so if you submit, and, and usually the way it works, they have... A website where you submit your your pitch deck, and then dozens of people see that, and you have no way to control where the information goes, and that's very very risky. And so we uh, avoided 
you know, such as situations. And we really relied heavily on the network to get in front of people that, that we, we, we trusted. Um, and that's, I think, I don't know if it's the only way, but it's probably the best way. Would that be right in saying there'd be a part of the kind of the VC and the investor market that kind of specializes in stealth related businesses? I'm assuming there seems to be specialist areas for everyone these days. Is, is that something that exists or am I uh, overthinking that one? Yeah, I, I don't think that's many of, you know, the VCs we talk to, they, they invest both in, in stealth companies and in, you know, companies that are public. And I think it's also, you know, VCs, it's more based on stage. So some VCs specialize in early investments in pre-seed, seed. Uh, there are others that are stage agnostic, some are later stage. And obviously in later stage companies, uh, they're public by definition, right? Because they're already selling product. Um, and so really stealth is only relevant to early stage companies. And so those VCs that specialize in seed, pre-seed, obviously they have a, a larger part of, of stealth companies on their portfolio. But I don't think a, a VC specializes in, in stealth companies. Our, our investors, you know, they have some stealth companies on their portfolio and, and some public companies. It's a mix. We're speaking uh, in uh, early to mid-September 2022, you did. Um, the global economy is in a very interesting position, but having been in my career, I've seen what the, the business and market was like after 9-11, seeing what it was like in 2008, seeing the pandemic, and now seeing the next set of challenges that, that, that await. Inevitably, there are some sectors that are incredibly affected by global uh, ups and downs and others that actually in a nice way, kind of doesn't matter too much because people are still going to want this in three, five years, whatever the case may be. Is that global economy and raising money something that has been a major challenge for you as an entrepreneur in this market? Or is there something else that's getting uh, more of your attention right now in terms of, uh, in terms of challenges? Oh, no, it, it definitely had, had an impact. Um, you know, the, the funding environment has radically changed in the last six months roughly um and so you know we we started i'd say just on the cusp of when things were amazing uh and the cusp of them turning into oh it's uh you know everything's gone horribly wrong and so that that was it was very challenging because what happens naturally in a, in a downturn is that a lot of investors uh lower the amount of investments um that becomes a challenge because then they really have to place their bets very carefully. So there's less less capital um, to go around. Valuations obviously were were impacted, and so uh, you know we we when we started we we on, we said uh, we would only give up a certain part of of the ownership of the company, and you know and, and many of my friends who raised uh, funds had to. You know, have to give up more than they intended to in the beginning. That's very challenging. But what I would say is this. Great companies are created in economic downturns as well. And so and, and, and investors know how to spot great companies and great products and great teams. And so I think there, there will always be there will always be investments, no matter what the environment looks like. Um, and yes, maybe the terms will be a bit less favorable, but I think in the end, that doesn't matter 
that much. Um, so as, as you know, if an entrepreneur is considering building something, they, they, I don't think they should take that into consideration uh, because if they have a great idea and uh, a great team, they will get an investment. And by the way, our, uh, the startup, uh, the semiconductor startup that I uh, joined very early in my career, that was founded in the uh, beginning of 2001. Uh, the bubble had just burst. Uh, there was no capital anywhere. Uh, and, and, you know, we were, uh, this was a uh, capital intensive business because semiconductor company, hardware development, pretty expensive. And yet still, you know, we managed to get the funding and uh, build a, a really big business out of it. So having been through this already uh, a couple of times, I can say it shouldn't stop you from uh, achieving your, uh, your dreams. Um, you've been through, I think I'm right in saying, a couple of acquisitions so far. You did where, like, you know, um, you, you've been a part of businesses that have gone through that process. Have, have there been either you know one, two, or three main takeaways that you take from that process? And and was an exit always in mind? I'd be interested to know the balance between those two things. That's a so exit is always you know I guess somewhere in the back of your mind, but it's not the the the, the plan, right? The plan is always to build a big business to create something of value to customers, to make an impact. That's always the main goal. My belief is if you do that and you, and you know, and you create a, uh, uh, create a strong team and uh, uh, an amazing product experience, there will always be, you know, a, a exit scenario. There will always be companies that will be interested in, in acquiring you. Right. So it's not something that you need to plan in advance if because if you have a bad product, then none of that matters. In the end, yes, you you'll maybe acquired for for the team. There may be an acqui hire. There may be there may be a acquisition of of uh, some of your assets, uh, but that's not a, a successful exit. Right. So a successful exit, really, uh, if you have if you've built the right product and the right team, that is going to happen. And I you know, obviously, there are things you can do to make it easier for that to happen, such as uh, start building relationships with potential acquirers very early on. Um, but I think that that was, you know, that that shouldn't be your your number one plan. It's also because investors they want to see a vision and they want to see someone who's willing to to go a long way, right, to pursue that. And not someone who's looking for a quick win. Oh, let's build something and sell it within a year. Because usually that also means that the, the outcome is, is less favorable for your investors. So that, I think that now uh, that's the second part of your question, right? The exit plan. Uh, the first part integration is, is extremely challenging, right? And, and many acquisitions fail because of, of the integration and, if you think about it, part of the reason you get acquired is because of your achievements, right? You've built a high-performing team. You've built a, a great product. Um, in some cases, you already have significant business. In others, not yet, but you have traction. And and a lot of this is because of the the, the culture you've you've built, right? Now, when you get acquired by a bigger organization, then now it's their culture. It's not your culture anymore. Now, in some cases, they will 
let you maintain your uh, independence. If you know they they kind of let you create this uh, organization that that is not impacted by the larger company. You're a daughter company, or maybe a separate business unit, um, and you can kind of keep your culture. But in other cases where you're assimilated into the larger organization, then it's not your culture anymore. And usually that means that, you know, uh, there will be impact. And so a lot of the magic disappears. And now you're really left with the technology and the product. In, in our first, you know, in the first uh, acquisition in, uh, in Passave, the, the semiconductor company, we were still a business unit. And so we had, uh, you know, a fair amount of independence. We could still maintain our, our culture. People very much felt like it, it was the same place, uh, although there was kind of new ownership. But in, in our, our uh, when we joined Bose, obviously uh, we were a smaller company, um, and so we we really you know we couldn't maintain our, our culture anymore. We became part of a bigger company. We adopted their culture, and obviously that that has impact on on the way you execute. Yeah, it's some very interesting bits and pieces here. Thank you for sharing Yadid. Uh, we always have a, a quick fire final three questions on, on the conversations you did, and I was really interested to hear from you. When you're in startup mode, <laughs> all hands to the pump and not loads of time for personal development, I don't think, but you've had an interesting blend in your career. So this is a question I was looking forward to asking of, of what have been the most effective personal methodologies that you've used to grow and develop as a leader in your career so far? Yeah, I, I think there were a couple. Um one was uh, mentorship, right? When I, 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 I was lucky to have a few mentors pretty early on in my career and uh, really learning from them uh, helped me grow as, as a leader. There are natural born leaders, right? Who somehow get it right. Uh, but most people I know don't get it right uh, on the first try. And, and really there's a lot of value to, to learn from someone who's made all the mistakes uh, you should also make mistakes on your own because that's how you learn. But really, someone who can uh, can share from their experience and, and help you grow um, is, I think, critical. Um, that's the first. The second is actually on the more uh, formal side. I'd say uh, kind of the middle part of my career, I, I uh, had a few trainings with uh, organizational psychologists that is really helpful because they take all of the things that you you've learned on the way in an informal way and they put it in a structured in a, a kind of a structured framework that suddenly you know you think about it and you say oh wait okay so that's why this works and why that's why this doesn't work and how I can can I build on that and become an even better leader right and how can I serve my team better so I think that those two were very, very helpful um, and uh, highly recommend that if you don't have a mentor, find a mentor and also get some uh, formal training. Yeah, I don't think many would be disagreeing with that. And has there been a, a, a book, a podcast or a movie that you recommend you did, that you've taken some long-lasting learns from? Yeah, um, actually um, a couple. Right? The, the first is uh, there's a book um, from – the 90s called Crossing the Chasm. Uh, Jeffrey Moore uh, is the author. Um, the second uh, book is called uh, Diffusion of Innovations by uh, Everett Rogers. And this book is from the 60s. So at this point, too, I think, so it's already 60 years old and still extremely relevant uh, 
today. And it talks about how do you introduce a new technology and how do you make, sh- how, how do you get it adopted, right? And what are some of the barriers, uh, cultural barriers that prevent that from happening and how you can get across that. And it's A, it's a fascinating read and B, it's, I, I think it, it again helps you uh, think through what is preventing some of your potential users from adopting your product, specifically if it's a, if it's, ra- it's a radical, you know, new technology, um, how would you do that most effectively? Uh, what are, what are some case studies of, of, that have failed in the past and what has worked and why? Lovely. Yeah. Some good reads there and a couple that I haven't been, uh, you did. So I'll be adding those to my considerable, uh, yet to read list. <laughs> um, and, and finally, if there was one learn that you'd want our listeners to take away from today and from your experience so far, what would it be? Don't be afraid to fail and, and, and to take, you know, to take risk. I think that's uh, failure and risk taking is probably the best way to learn. It's not the most pleasant way to learn. It's sometimes very painful, uh, but it's, it's very effective. And I think, you know, as an early, you know, I'd recommend if you're uh, early, uh, like a young entrepreneur, then that's the time to take the most risk because really you have, you know, in many cases, you have very few liabilities. You don't have a mortgage, you don't have a family. And so really you can live on ramen noodles with, with 10 uh, flatmates um, and find a way to make it work. Whereas as you grow and if you have a family, that becomes very, very challenging. And, you know, I have, I have friends who, who, you know, my age who are, who are dying to go and start another company and they just, they just can't because of their uh, family situation. And, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking because that's where their passion lies and they have some amazing ideas that they want to bring to life and they just, they just can't. Um, so I would recommend uh, if you can, then, then definitely do it. Absolutely. I think uh, our business ethos is empowering people to succeed. And um, within 48 hours of everyone starting, I make sure I have a chat with them. And, and let everyone know we've got a very graduate model business. And I say to everyone, do you know what empowering people to succeed means for you guys in the next year or two? We're empowering you to fail. Please don't think that failing is anything other than learning because that's all it is. We should replace the word fail with learn because without that, you've got no chance. And we try and make sure that you know failing is not the, the be all and end all. People aren't afraid to do it. Otherwise, how do you provide a, uh, an environment of innovation and improving, right? So um, yeah, that's what we, I, I, I couldn't agree with that anymore. You did it. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. Um, and there's certainly been a, a lot that I'll be taking away and I'm sure that uh, our listeners will be too. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in the network. Thanks again, you did. Thank you, Peter.